Well, good morning again to everybody, and good morning to those people tuning in on online. Uh, for those who do not know me, my name is Patrick, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the Word Church, and I'm really glad that everybody is here as we launch into the fall, because we have some people who've started back to school, haven't we? Can I hear a collective groan from the, from the children? Oh. And now can I hear the parents go, yes. All right. Yes, we're getting back into the, the fall routine, and I don't know about it. In our house, it is kind of nice to get back into a little bit more of a routine. We're not there yet, but we're working our way toward it. And here at the church, we're really kind of settling into that routine as well, because summer ends up being a lot of chaotic time with people coming and going, and in the fall, now that we're all kind of getting into schedules, we kind of really settle into the groove, and, and it also is a settling into the groove of the, of the church calendar, because, you know, now we are, we're, we're fast approaching Advent. I know it's hard to believe, you don't want to be talking about Christmas now, but there's already Christmas countdowns out there going on. Uh, so we're kind of settling into that path, because Christmas is actually the beginning of the church calendar. So we're actually coming to the end of the year coming up. So isn't that, isn't that exciting? Coming to the end of the year? All right, you're not excited about it. Well, starting out this morning, I wanted to ask a question of you, something, something to ponder. So if, let's say, a first or second century Christian were to walk in the room right now and witness us worshiping, or they would come and see how we organize ourselves and act like a church, would they recognize anything? Would there be any similarities? What do you think? Some? The table behind me, they might say, oh, that looks, that looks a little familiar. They'd want to know what's hanging off my ear and why I'm talking into a little white box on a tripod. Sharing the passing of the peace. Obviously, they wouldn't understand our language, but that's okay. I mean, there would be some things that would be similar, but there would be some things that are quite different, wouldn't there be? Well, technology, absolutely. A lot of technology that we have, the fact that here we are meeting in this public space, and the vast majority of them were meeting in very private places and homes. That would be quite different. The fact that we have signs outside saying, hey, we're here, where a lot of them would have been going, hey, we're over, we're over here. I mean, it would have been a lot more secretive. What they considered to be important might be a little different than what we might consider to be important, wouldn't it? I mean, let's, let's honest. We've, we've made some advances, haven't we? I mean, you, Henry, you mentioned technology. Technology can be a good thing. It can be a good tool. I mean, here I am talking into my phone, talking into a microphone. We have a screen that displays words behind us that can be very helpful in guiding us in our discussions. But as we have advanced in new things, I wonder, are all the changes that we've made been good? Do you think every change that we've made has been good? Certainly there are good changes we've made, right? And then our culture has allowed us to make, or maybe it's been necessary to make so that we can continue to reach people. But I wonder sometimes if we've gotten too far away from the ways of Jesus. If Jesus were to walk in the room now, would he recognize his church? So what does it look like to be a church that is like Jesus? 
You know, because some of the things I've, I've seen happen is that uh, we've discussed in our leadership meeting that so often churches end up acting more like corporations than they do churches. I mean, we have boards, ruling boards, and so often you sit in a board meeting of a church, you're going to be just as bored, hey, you like to play words there, as you would be in a corporate board meeting where people are just kind of, all right, we're doing this. We, we look at some similar statistics. We look in crunch numbers. I'm looking at Mike, our treasurer. And these aren't necessarily bad things, but have we strayed so far that we're forgetting the important things that are most important? It's true that Jesus became the Word made flesh. So he could come and live among us, which is an amazing thing to atone for our sins, to give us a way to righteousness. But he also came as an example. So what does it look like to look at his ministry and say, you know what, Jesus is actually helping us understand how we bring people closer to him. If we just look how he did it. That is exactly what we're going to be wrestling with in this new series that we're doing, A Church Like Jesus. We are going to look at the ministry of Jesus and say, how can we model ourselves more after that as opposed to what we might think is important? What does Jesus consider important? Who does Jesus consider is important? How do we go about this? And so that's what we're going to be discussing for the next seven weeks in hopes that maybe we can better grasp as a people of God how we can be a church like Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a worthy goal? That's what we're going to attempt to do. And this week we will begin with this idea of an invitation, or you might even consider it to be hospitality, but I think it's so much more than that. But before we go any further, let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our discussion. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in your name in a public space with signs pointing the way. And Lord, we thank you for this group of people gathered, their willingness to take their time to devote to you, to worship you. And we pray that as we dig deeper into your word, that your word would bless us and guide us and direct us in your ways. So Lord, silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said, amen. So to illustrate what we're talking about here with invitation, we're looking at this little story about a man named Zacchaeus. And if you just want to call him Zach for short, you know, he's not here to tell us otherwise, we'll call him Zach for short. So we have this, this story about this man named Zacchaeus. It's in, uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And so I just want to read the first three verses again. Let's look, it says, He, that being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man or was of small in stature. This is not unimportant information. Let's keep that in mind. You start, you know, especially when you get down to the parts, like, did they really have to point out they're short? That's not very PC. Did he really have to point out? Can't we say vertically challenged at least? But no, this is all there for a reason. And it's to help us understand. And I think it really leads us to our first point of Jesus. Before 
you know, Jesus is just mentored walking into the crowd, or walking into the town, and we know the, the story continues on from there. But I want to start with this description of Zacchaeus because I think it helps us to understand that, first of all, Jesus sees. Jesus sees. What does Jesus see? Jesus sees people for who they are and for where they are. And I think that's important for us to hear because, you know, let's, let's, well, let's break it down. So first it mentions Zacchaeus. Who was Zacchaeus? What was he? Can you remember? IRS agent, yeah. He worked for big government. He was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector. He was chief tax collector. Okay, nobody here probably likes taxes, likes paying taxes. I mean, we, nobody enjoys that. You hate to see it off your paycheck. And anybody who works in the IRS knows they're probably going to be hated. You know, even though we know they need the job, they need the work, somebody's going to have to do it. But we have to understand a little bit better of why would he be so hated at this time? Because Zacchaeus would have been despised by his own people. In fact, they would have gone as far to say he was a traitor to their own people. Why? Do you know how tax collectors made their money? There's the tax they were asked to collect and that they would feed up the chain. But do you think they collected just what was asked of them to collect? Nope. You got to pick your own salary. Oh, you want us to collect 5%? Okay, we're collecting 10%. 5% goes to me, and then I'll send 5% up to the emperor. They basically gouged and, 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 and took money off, skimmed money off the top. And so do you think those people were liked because people knew that was how they made their money? And that if their taxes were really high, it wasn't just because of the emperor. It was because of the tax collectors who wanted to get rich off of other people's money. But it's not just that for Zacchaeus, because he's a chief tax collector. Why is that important? He wasn't the guy anymore going out and collecting the money. He had people doing it for him. They would bring the money in, take off their little bit of cut. He would take the rest of the cut off, and then he'd send it up. And so he wasn't even willing to do the dirty work anymore. He was the one, the ultimate middleman right there, organizing the people to go get it. So he was considered a dirty, sinful traitor. And I think it's important to note that Jesus doesn't ignore this. He knows this, but he doesn't let it cloud his vision of who Zacchaeus really is. Because is Zacchaeus really just a chief tax collector, traitor to his own people, a sinful man? Is that all he is? Your work, is that all that you are? There's so much more, but so often that is what people choose to see. People wrote off Zacchaeus because of that part of his life. But do you think there is more under the surface of Zacchaeus? Sure, he was a sinner. But there's so much more. And then it goes on to call him short, right? Why would that be important? Well, I mean, it helps us understand a little bit of why he would climb the tree in the first place. But I think there's so much more of why they make a point to mention this in the passage. He was short. I mean, do you think 
people looked favorably upon short people. I mean, it could just, it, maybe it wasn't height. Maybe it's the way someone looks. Maybe it's the way they appear. How often do we have trouble looking beyond someone's appearance or what we can see on the surface? Maybe it's socioeconomic status. Someone appears to be in one, in one place. Or we might say, you know what, that person smells. And so we don't really go talk to them or we don't want to sit next to them. We let shallow things stand in the way. I mean, we let cultural differences, perceived cultural differences. Just because you see someone of a certain descent doesn't mean you're you, you, you in America. You can look at someone, they can look a different race, a different culture, and you go talk to them and go, uh, no, I'm American. But yet, we would let what we see block us. I mean, we let race, we let gender, we let all sorts of things stand in the way of us seeing beyond because isn't a person more than the way they appear? Zacchaeus was more than what he appeared to be. And Jesus saw beyond that. It's a call for us as the church to see beyond that because far too often... Good people allow shallow thinking and shallow vision to hinder them from seeing beyond what they see in a person. Our country would be a far better place if we all were able to see beyond what's on the surface. How often are we yelling at the other without knowing the other? Do we even know who they are? And there's an interesting part here. So here you have this short, sinful tax collector. But what's interesting about him is as sinful and as broken as he was, and he was, what was he seeking to do? To see Jesus. Here is this man who should have been dignified, and then what does he do? Excuse me, what does he do? He runs ahead to climb a tree because he wants to see Jesus. Do you think people would have looked at Zacchaeus when he's going about his work and thought that he was somebody who would want to see Jesus? Which is another important note. Despite everything else we learn about Zacchaeus, he is curious. In fact, in the church world, we might go as far to say he was a seeker. He was someone open to the possibility of knowing who this Jesus was. He was curious. He had heard things. Things had been passed around. He wanted to know who is this man that everybody keeps talking about, that is changing things all around us. And Jesus saw Zacchaeus for who he truly was, a lost child seeking hope, healing, purpose. Yes, he was broken. Yes, he was sinful, but Jesus saw beyond that to someone who is curious. Are we willing as a church to see like Jesus? If we want to be an inviting, hospitable church, we have to see like Jesus. We can't just look and welcome people who look like us, act like us, even believe like us. 
people come broken in all different shapes and sizes and forms and genders and races and socioeconomic statuses. People come in all forms. And are we really willing to see anybody who would come in our presence, who would come into our lives and see them for who they truly are, a lost child of God who needs Jesus just as much as we do? Do they not bleed red just like you and me? Can we do the same thing and look beyond the surface and see what we would say? Scripture says that we are all made in the image of God, or the term there is the imago Dei, image of God. Are we willing to seek to see the image of God in anyone and everyone? And a question for us as the church, are we really seeking to save the low-life sinners, the people we would normally just say, I I don't want to associate with that kind of person. Because do you think someone who is curious and seeking like Zacchaeus had given up everything in his sinful life before he came into the presence of Jesus? But yet so often we as a church expect people to conform to all these set rules and regulations and the ways that we believe before they'd ever set foot in the door. Can we really expect people to be changed before they step in front of the presence of the one who changes. We have to be willing. We have to be understanding. We have to be graceful. We have to be inviting. Are we willing to see like Jesus? If we hope to be a church like Jesus, we must see past the surface to who people really are, broken children, no better, no worse than us. The passage goes on to say that he ran ahead and climbed up that sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus sees, but not only does Jesus see, but Jesus is active. Who is the mover in this? Jesus is acting. Sure, Zacchaeus climbs a tree, but you know what? Do we really think he would have come down from that tree if Jesus hadn't called him out of the tree? Jesus is active, and he is not passive in his call to Zacchaeus. There is a time and a place for curiosity, for sitting up in the tree and looking at Jesus. But there is also a time and a place for getting down from that tree and welcoming Jesus with open arms, the way Zacchaeus did. Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree into his presence. I think the church struggles in this because for far too long, we were able to get away with what I would call passive evangelism. I mean, there's a whole day and age. In fact, you look at the church boom in our country. It was back when you could put a sign out and people would just show up at your church. And that was considered evangelism. I know I laugh as, you know, we have guys who get up early to come put signs out. But we don't necessarily expect that people are just going to walk walk in the door because you put a sign out. But in that day and age, when someone new moved into town, the question wasn't so much, are they going to come to church? It was where they are going to go to church. 
And you'd find out, are they Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Catholic? And then you say, okay, well, the Catholic church is over there, Presbyterian church is that way, and you just point people around, and that's what happened. And people were loyal to denominations, and they would just go to that church. And so people didn't have to do the hard work of evangelism. It just happened. And it's hurt us because we still expect things to work that way. We have become passive in our invitation. And do people really accept a passive invitation anymore? In a world where, in a culture right now where there's so many things competing for our time, do you think people are going to accept a lackluster passive invitation to to just come? It doesn't work that way anymore. We as the church have to be active. In fact, we have to be proactive in our relationship with people we might consider to be seekers, curious about Jesus. And maybe they're curious without even knowing that they are curious. We must be kind yet persistent in inviting people to Jesus. Because let's be clear, Jesus is who we're inviting people to, not just to a church. I think that's important for us to hear because here we are. We're a church startup. We're a church plant. And the compulsion could be is we just need to invite as many people as we can because we need to grow. We need to, to meet our metrics. We need to meet our budget and yada, 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 yada. But is that what it's really about? Or are we calling people to something much greater than us? We are calling people to Jesus. That's what's important. Jesus is the one who changes things. Christian community is an important part of that. Don't get me wrong. We believe that as we seek to see our community change through the hope and healing of Jesus, that that happens by and large in Christian community. When we, when we gather, when we support one another, when we help one another, when we instruct one another, when we do things together, reach out into the world, that does make a difference. But if Jesus is nowhere in that, nothing good happens. Jesus is who we are inviting people to, and we have to be active and proactive when seeking that out. So my questions to you in this, if Jesus is active, do you intentionally seek people who are far from God? Do you? Do you intentionally seek to put yourself in the presence and connecting with people that are far from God? Or are the only people you know fellow believers? When is the last time you opened up to someone about your faith? Told them why it means something to you? When's the last time you invited someone to join you in a Bible study, in a mission project, in Sunday worship, or a time of spiritual conversations over coffee after work? When is the last time you invited someone to anything? Sure, not everyone is going to jump at the opportunity and cheer like the embrace of Zacchaeus, where he immediately jumps down a tree and embraces Jesus. Sometimes it takes persistence, graceful persistence. I mean, I think, you know, you hear you have to invite someone like seven to 11 times before they might accept. And I'd imagine in today's world, you might even have to ask more than that. 
But are we persistent, asking people, will, will you join with me in this? And again, it's not just Sunday worship. Maybe it's just meeting with you to ask the hard questions and wrestle together. Say, you know, I'm reading the Bible. Have you ever, have you ever read it? Do you want to read it with me? Do you want to study it? We're having a study this other night. We're going on this mission project. We're going to be working at the assisted living facility over here. You want to come and help us. We're going to be serving the residents there. Are we active and proactive like Jesus? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Out of all the great things Jesus has done, what do they pick on? They pick on that he's going to eat with a tax collector. Because this is the guy who eats with tax collectors. The lowest of the low. The prostitutes, the sinners, the outskirts of society. Jesus, in a very undignified manner, goes and eats with them. Jesus goes where the people are. He doesn't just expect them to come to him. He goes to them. How much of Jesus' ministry is him going to different places? Or does he just set up camp in one place and everybody just keeps coming and that's all we ever see? Jesus is active. He's going around. It's on the way to this place and then he's on the way to this place and on the way he goes to where the people are. And maybe in the back of your mind you have the Little Mermaid song playing, you know, I want to be where the people are. But isn't that what Jesus does? He's where the people are. He doesn't just go set up in the temple and spend his time there. He goes to people. And why do I keep reiterating this? Because how often do us as the church go to people or do we expect them to show up? We keep putting out our 1950s signs and say, well, just come here. People aren't coming because we, as the church, have to go meet them where they are. Maybe you remember the church being a safe place and it was a sanctuary. And so you just said, you know, this is a safe place. You know what? Too many people today don't think the church is a safe place. So we have to prove it otherwise. And we have to help them see that the church isn't a building. The church is a people. A broken people seeking after God and forgiven by Jesus. But a people nonetheless. Are we willing to go to the people? Now I'm not saying that we need to be like Jesus in the sense that everyone we come over to and say, Hey, I'm coming over to your, your house tonight for dinner. Uh, when, when should I be there? What are we having? What do you want me to bring? That may not be the best example, but I do think it points us to an important point of us going to people, that us being willing to go into different spaces. Maybe it is going to someone's house. Maybe it's inviting over to your house. Maybe it's meeting at a coffee shop. Figuring out what's important at that time so you can have these conversations. I ran across a very interesting article I think I already discussed Jesus Goes. Sorry. Ran across a very interesting article uh, by Bob... I'm going to butcher his last name. I knew I would do it. Bob Rungleon. We'll just go with that. Bob Rungleon. 
And in this, in this blog, it was a two-part blog series, and he talks about investing the right capitals and the right spaces. Capitals and spaces. Because what does he point out? He, he points out that sociology, it actually looks that there's about four different levels of spaces around us. Why is this important? Because we act different in different spaces. And so he points out the first space is the biggest of it all. So it's the public space. It's the, the large, you know, 100 to 1,000 people or whatever beyond that. That's the large public space. I keep saying splace. The space. Then the second level is the social space. That's midsize. That's 20 to 50. And in Jesus' time, that would have been a household because you didn't just have your nuclear family with you. You had your extended family living together in a small space. And so you would easily have 20 to 50 people. That's why I have household there. And then your third space is your personal space. A little different than when, you know, you go, my personal space, you know, bubble. My sister used to always do that. You know, personal bubble, personal bubble. This is a little bit larger than that. Your personal space or small groups, that's, that's your nuclear family. That's your best friends. That's the people who you gather with. And then the fourth and the most confined space is your intimate space. That's two to three people that usually are close to you. Your, your spouse, your best friends, your children, but just two to three people. And so you have these four different levels of spaces. And we see Jesus interacting in all these spaces, don't we? We see him going to two to three people, to one person, to Zacchaeus right here, and then he starts in the intimate space, doesn't he? He comes to Zacchaeus, it's the intimate space, and then he invites himself over to his house, again, not something necessarily you want to do, but this is a different time, and he's Jesus and you're not. So Jesus invites himself over to his personal space and then probably his social space because he would have had extended family there. And so Jesus already interacted, and he came in in the public space because there were people watching him as he was coming in. But spaces are not the only thing we have to consider, is it? We also have to consider the capitals. So if we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, I want to read this to you, and I want to point out how Jesus is pointing out different capital. It says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the labor deserves his wa- laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from, the, from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. All right, so utilizing that verse, we're going to talk about some different capitals. First of all, spiritual capital. Spiritual capital. When he says he heals the sick, that's the wisdom and the power of God working through us. Prayer can be a spiritual capital. When you are going to pray for someone, even if they don't know it, you are investing spiritual capital into them. You are praying for healing. You're praying for hope. You're praying for direction. Then there's the relational capital. When he says, remain in the same house, this is opening ourselves to getting to know others. Because if they're remaining in the house, 
it's not just a quick pass by. They actually get to know the people there, right? When they're sharing space. So relational capital. And this isn't just, you know, passing by a coworker at work and just saying, hey. It's actually getting to know them. Do you know what their home life is like? Do you know some of their past hurts, their story? Do you know? That's relational capital. And then there's physical capital. Every house you enter, enter, this is spending our time and energy with others. Your physical presence is a physical capital. Your fourth is your intellectual capital. That's when you say, say to them, sharing creativity and knowledge with others. Having conversations, giving insights. This is intellectual capital. When someone asks for advice and you're helping them process that, that's intellectual capital. And the fifth and final is financial capital. Eating and drinking, because eating and drinking costs money, right? It costs them something. It's sharing money and physical resources with others. When you invite someone over to your home and you feed them, that is a financial capital. When you loan a neighbor lawn equipment or whatever, that is financial capital because guess what? If you don't get it back, you're buying a new one. So all of these are important, but can you all the time invest every single one of these in every single space? That's where our discernment takes place. And I'll, I'll put this article up. In fact, it's already been shared on social media because it says far more than I can share in this context. But he kind of breaks down where different capitals fit best into the different spaces. But we have to discern, like Jesus does, what is the capital I need here? Because maybe, maybe you don't want to go around just sharing money with people right off the bat because maybe that's not going to actually help with anything. I'm sure most people would gladly take it. Oh, thank you. But then you're not going to make it anywhere. But we have to look and discern. One of the things I've actually found that when moving to a new neighborhood, you know, we've been here a little over two years, I've learned the neighbors that I've connected with are actually the neighbors that I asked them for help. Usually we think it's the opposite of that we've helped them. One of our neighbors that I'm closest with, you know, I, I realized that our, our relationship changed and we got to know each other, not when I said, hey, you know, I have this, if you ever need it, you can borrow it, because are they ever going to come over and borrow it? Most of the time, no. But it was when I said, hey, do you happen to have this? Could, could you help me out? Could I, could I borrow it? And guess what? He helped me. And now we do it back and forth. We share stuff. We help, help each other. I'll notice him out mowing his grass. And if I finished my yard, I'll go over and with my weed eater start edging his lawn. And he's come over and helped me many a times. But the relationship changed when I asked him for help. Something changes in people's minds when they realize, oh, I can help you. I can do this. A lot of times people want to help, they just don't know how. But we have to put our pride aside sometimes. Because it would have just been easy for me to say, oh no, well, I'll, I'll take care of this myself. Because how often do we do that? I'll just take care of this myself. Are we willing to ask people? Because that opens the door for then more relational capital to be shared. And we can begin building relationships with people. Jesus changes hearts. That's our last one. Jesus changes hearts. Because what changed in Zacchaeus? It wouldn't have been anything that we could have done ourselves. We have to understand that Jesus changes hearts, not us. But people may never encounter him unless 
we show the way. We are the sign pointing to Jesus. But are we really pointing to Jesus, or are we pointing to ourselves? Too often we point to ourselves when Jesus is the one who changes hearts. So my question for you that I leave in reflection is, do you really believe that knowing Jesus and building your life around Him makes a difference? Does believing in Jesus matter? Does it make a difference? Because if you can't honestly answer that question in the affirmative, what do you have to share with anybody? We can only share what we already have. Do you believe that Jesus really brings hope and healing as we hope to share with this world? Do you believe that Jesus works through broken people to do good in the lives of others? People need to know that Jesus is real, that Jesus is good, and that hope and healing he brings is beautiful and amazing. Does your story speak to that and help people see that? Saints, if we hope to be a church like Jesus, we must stay focused on what Jesus does, who Jesus loves, and who Jesus is. Otherwise, we will not resemble our Savior. A church like Jesus sees people for who they are and for where they are. They are active and not passive in their call. They go to where the people are and they know that Jesus changes hearts, not us. That is what it means to invite and be a church like Jesus. Are you and ready to invite people, truly invite people to experience Jesus? Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you. We thank you that you give us instruction and you give us a model as we read scripture. And we pray that you would help us to see more and more how we can conform our lives to yours and follow in your way so that we can truly impact people in your name. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty saving name. Amen.